Welcome to Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. It's hard to think of a more distinctive Miami voice than that of the author Edwige Dantica. We've been doing the show for a year now, and no one's name comes up more often in conversation than hers, whether we're talking about writing or culture. Edwige stands at the intersection of both. In her nonfiction or her novels, short stories or children's books, her voice rings with a unique sound. Hades, where she was born, and the diasporas here in Miami. Her books help us understand the connection between the two. She was twice a finalist for the National Book Award, and she's a MacArthur Fellow, a Genius Grant winner. The Miami Book Fair is honoring her at its 40th anniversary gala Friday night, and she'll be on a panel with other Caribbean voices the next day. We're celebrating books by talking to authors all week. We'll finish with a taping of Sundown before a live audience when we speak with Carl Hyacin. You should all come out and watch the show get made on Saturday. To help us kick off Book Love Week today is Edwige Dandika. Edwige, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, and much book love to you and to all of Miami and the Miami Book Fair. Happy 40th. Books, 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 books. We're going to celebrate books all week here. Like this, we're, we're at the center of the books universe this week, right? Yes, it's better to celebrate books than to ban them. So yes, <laughs> louder for the folks in the back, Edwige. <laughs> Let's celebrate books and not ban books. And you know, in that vein, like we could we could start with talking about your books and your writing career. But I want to talk about a book that you did not write, but you wrote for. Uh, I was reading a um, uh, kind of an updated version after years of "The Eyes Were Watching God." Mm. that seminal book by Zora Neale Hurston, and I noticed that the foreword was written by you. Tell me about that. Was she, what role did, did Zora Neale Hurston play in your, in your inspiration, in your writing career, in your life? Well, you know, it's interesting because I was asked to write the, the foreword when I was a Stanford like, fellow at the University of Miami. And so I remember many moons ago, and I remember writing that, and this sort of little hotel room style apartment across the the street from the university when mm. I was uh, visiting there. So it has a Miami connection as well. Um, Zora Neale Hurston, for like for me, like so many of us, is an ancestor, a foremother, um, and I've I have a you know we have a special connection to her because actually their eyes were watching God was written in Haiti. Um, when she was uh, visiting there for her anthropology, but and, you know she was an anthropologist. She went to. She was the first black woman to go to Barnard College, which is also where I went to college. And next year in 2025, they'll be you know celebrating the hundred years of Zora at Barnard. It's going to be Zora all the time at Barnard next year. So we had all these intersections. Um, and one of the things that, you know, Zora's career and her, you know, feist her, you know, I've made many trips to Eatonville hmm. um, where she was born and that wonderful festival that they have every year that I recommend all book lovers try to make it to. So when I was asked to, ask the fo- to write the forward, I was, you know, extremely honored um, and, you know, just and people always startled. I think I always get actually parents of friends who are whose children are assigned the book and they're like oh your name is in this book and so (laughs) (laughs) 
for me, it's um, it's an extraordinary um, honor. It will probably soon be someone else's turn to forward it, but uh, <laughs> but um, but it's it's just been wonderful to 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 reconnect with her in that way because we already have all these Venn diagram historical connections. I, and that's interesting that all the connections that you guys have, all those places where you meet and and there is a little bit of fangirling in that book. Like, I can't believe I'm in the place where she, uh, you know, where she was writing this, you know, these things. And and there is a bit of fangirling there. And, and I wonder, and, you know, she was and she started as an anthropologist and I'm I'm a, an anthropologist. I was an anthropology student in school as well. So I I related to that. And I'm wondering if you feel like you see yourself in that role, a little bit of like ethnographer, anthropologist for the places that you're writing about? Yeah, you know, I try to resist that just Mm. because I think it's a role that's often assigned to, um, you know, um, let's say minority voices. Sometimes people will try to make you sort of the, um, the voice or like a cultural, more of a cultural figure. I, I, one, I want to write stories, and I think she was a cultural figure in the sense like she had so much, you know, personality. She could have been a great actress too. Um, I am, I'm sort of more like I, I, I consider myself a storyteller, or I was certainly a storyteller, and and I think through the stories, all that is done. I don't. I also try to resist the weight of like having one story mean everything. Mm. Um, yeah, so I think I think it's also important to leave room for other voices um, to and and I see because they weren't when I was starting that many um, voices from Haiti and English. So this is also part of the reason that I edited a bunch of books and I because I I want to see myself more just because also my personality and you know, like I want to see more of my, myself more as an entry. And then, like, people, if people are curious about my stories, I want them to then go out and find more stories from Haiti. I want them to go to a little Haiti and eat Haitian food, and I want them to find some Haitian music. I just, I, I see myself more as, like, like, a, like a crack in the door, and then others will, you know, push it open. Edwidge Dandika is your, is your gateway drug to, to Haiti <laughs> culture and food and literature. I hope, I hope. But one of them, I hope. <laughs> That's an interesting. I mean, obviously, it's a thing that that um, folks when when it's a new voice, um, they're like, "Oh, this is the new voice for this country," right? It's not like there are millions of people in that country and millions of of talents waiting to break out and have many different perspectives, right? And and that seems that's an interesting role that you're that you're that you want to situate yourself in is like opening the door for other voices that like if you like this work, you might like this work. Absolutely. I think, um, yeah, and I think that's, you know, you know, you were talking about career, like starting, Mm. Um, you know, my first book, Breath Eyes Memory, is going to be 30 next year. You know, my child is much, much younger than that. (laughs) And, and so, you know, uh, my oldest child, I have two, my, um, they're both younger than that. And so it's just, you know, when you think back on it, like I was very young, I was 24 when that book was published. So it's, that's just not a role that, a, you know, that a 24 year old wanted or should have. Mm-hmm. 
And, um, and so I was learning it along as, you know, with everybody else who was reading the book, you know, what it was like to have a story out in the world that other people were responding to, not always positively, which is, you know, their, their right and duty and obligation. But, you know, you're still like a, a kid in the middle of this. And so it was, it was a learning experience also to just like, and thank goodness pre-internet because I don't know if I could <laughs> handle the criticism. That's interesting that you got, that you got, because obviously people can say a thousand nice things and you hear one negative thing and that's the thing you're talking about 30 years later. Um, well, no, that's not really, it's not, it wasn't one thing, but I think that's the writer's plight, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, when I, friend, writer friends, people who seem really tough when, you know, when we talk about that, they're like, yes, there was, the, everything was good. And then they just remember that lap, you know, sort of the obligatory, um, this book would have been better with, you know, that's in all reviews. And, and you kind of remember that. But I think, um, you know, when we are having, when, when new voices come from these cultures, they are giving that sometimes a very big responsibility of, of representing the culture. And then mm. sometimes people inside the culture will be like, I didn't elect you, you know. I mean, we, there was like a whole thing, uh, you know, I want to say thank you to Michelle from, from my, you know, new, Miami New Drama because, you know, last spring we had a whole play about this Create Dangerously um, with, you know, which engaged a little bit some of that issue of like who represents a culture and what does that mean and, mm. and, um, and self, you know, what it means to be an artist in terms of, you know, self-censoring and then, you know, being very proud of your culture, but then sometimes having to speak, you know, difficult truths and, I, I think all of that is part of the work of an artist, but particularly the work of immigrant artists. You know, in Miami, we have such a wonderful, vibrant, recent, current immigrant culture that um, you know all of that is in is in the mix when one is creating art, and and you know that's from visual music to all, but particularly to writing writing books, which is for our parents, you know, or our grandparents might be a different practice, right? Like we're used to telling stories in the family and in and, and, and community, but now when you publish a book or you publish something on the internet, you're telling that story to the whole world. So, so fill up my, my TBR list. So who are some other, uh, who are some other uh, Haitian authors or some other young authors that speak to that uh, that you're excited about, that you would point to like, hey, you're here in the room now. Uh, maybe you should take a look at this writer or this book. Well, this is why the book fair is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) There's going to be so many of these folks like, um, and you know, and the folks on who are going to be on the panel with me, um, MJ Fiev, Miriam Chansey, um, and many others, um, you know, and they're, uh, from across the Island. There's, um, Angie Cruz. I don't think Angie, who are Dominicana. I don't think Angie's coming hmm. to the book fair this year. But there's, I mean, that's that's what's amazing about the book fair, that you get an opportunity to, um, you know, sometimes it's a, it's such a wealth, right, um, of of riches there. So I I would assign that job to everybody who's going. Um, you, yes, go to the people you know and love. But find someone you've never heard of before um, on that big, beautiful 
you know, pamphlet they give you and, and go and just like, I want to go hear some this person because they intrigue me. I don't know their work at all. Um, sometimes that happens because, you know, I think, um, I think uh, Mitchell and Lizette, you know, Mitchell Kaplan of Books and Books and mm -hmm. Lizette Mendez, they do a really great job of programming to overlap like established voices with younger voices. So people come across folks like that too on these panels. But it's that's one of the important things that the book fair allows for us to discover new voices, for us to hear other voices, sometimes contrary voices. But you know, you come you come out more enlightened. So your your to you know to be you know discovered list will increase over the over the weekend. <laughs> but um, and I haven't had a chance to look at the whole program. To, but just go see someone you've never read before. Is there um, you know when you when you think about um, that first publishing moment, right? When you're you said you're twenty four. And you're publishing that book and you're putting it out into the universe. Are you thinking this is the beginning of something? Are you feeling like if I get this just this one book published, this will be this will be a goal achieved? Talk to me about kind of taking me back to looking back at your career in that way. Well, you know, the, I was writing uh, my first book when I was at, at Barnard. I would I wrote secretly. I you know I was um, studying French literature and, and the economics. So I, and then I would, um, I tell my children, I don't advise this, but I would always suddenly get story ideas the night before my finals. It was just like really <laughs> bizarre and divine. I was like, oh my God, I'm inspired uh, by procrastination. And so um, I ended up writing a lot of my, my stories in Creek Crack, which is my second book, when I was in college that way. And then... Um, so I, but when I had 150 pages of my novel, though, I sent it out to a publisher and she said, you know, not, it was a Soho Press, which ended up publishing me, hmm. but this is not quite there, but keep working on it. And I kept working and I used the, the, what I had as my, um, as what I submitted for, for my master's. And that was my, and the book became my thesis and then I sent it back and it was published. And I, but I was working a full-time job. I was working for the filmmaker Jonathan Demi, who is from Miami. Too. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and that was I thought you, I thought you didn't want to be an actress like like Zora Neale, <laughs> or maybe you did. No, I I I, I worked as an, as an assistant, and we we made we did so many. He brought me. I joke sometimes that I went to Haiti with him more than I did with my parents. <laughs> um, as an adult, you know, um, so. I, he, we worked on many documentaries about Haiti together. So I was working a full-time job when my, when my book was published. So I didn't have that sort of, you know, the way publishing works is you send, it's like hurry up and wait. Like you send your manuscript and then a good time goes back. And it takes about, you know, in almost a 18 months to two-year mm -hmm. cycle between manuscript and publication, as you know. And so I thought, wow, this is going to be, you know, I'm just happy that my book is published. And then I remember my editor, Laura Ruska, um, when we got our first like review, she came to my cubicle in Jonathan's, you know, office there. And she says, you know, Laura, Laura has since passed on, but she was my first editor. She's the person who acquired my book at this very tiny publishing house called Soho Press. And she said, Edwige, you're going to have to think about a career. 
And wow. I, you know, and I knew I, I loved, I love writing. I, I've always loved writing. And I knew that no matter what I, else I was doing, I would be writing. Whether anybody was reading it, I would be writing. But that moment, you know, with Laura sitting in my tiny windowless cubicle telling me that thing, I thought, oh, my God, like, that's pretty amazing. That was like a bluebird that had landed on your windowsill. Yeah, yeah. And I I think about that to this day, you know, when when I'm stuck or I'm like, wow, Laura said I was going to have a career, so I better have a career. (laughs) Our guest today is Edwige Dantica. She's the author of many books, including Crick Crack and Brother I'm Dying, which were both finalists for the National Book Award. And she'll be here for the Miami Book Fair, where she's being honored um, for her career. Um, Edwige, you're, it's, I love that you, you write in this voice and you speak in this voice in any of your books where you move us between Haiti and America, Haiti and Miami, Haiti and New York. Um, and you kind of you put us in these places. And... I think it, it says so much about your own your own journey. You um you grew up in Haiti until you were until you were twelve, right? Yes, um, I was born in Haiti, and my my mom and dad my my dad left first um, when I was two, and then my mom when I was four, and I grew up with my aunt and uncle who was really they were their house um, in in a neighborhood in Haiti called Bel Air was like the was was like that home in Madeline in the house in Paris that was covered with vines with with the nuns except our um you know elderly kind of aunt and uncle were um the nuns because all the children <laughs> all the children of um the family like whose parents were abroad lived with them so I, I grew up in sort of in a com, you know this kind of communal um, home, in a really vibrant, then very vibrant city neighborhood, and then we spent the the summers in the countryside. You know, like in as summer, almost the day after summer vacation, we were given a couple of bags of rice and and beans and oil and corn, and off we went until it was time to come back and get measured for our school uniforms and shoes <laughs> which you had you had grown into the new set and and I think I think a lot of people um, share a similar thing uh, experience with immigrant parents where they go on ahead you know uh, ostensibly hopefully to make a, a life for your for themselves and to send money back and hopefully to to receive you right and and a lot of time goes by and before you know it a, a whole childhood has gone by Um and and these other folks that you're living with are they become like your they become the parents that you see every day and the other ones versus a a, a voice on the other end of the phone and uh, and I'm wondering I don't know uh, kind of what what that was like about did you understand what was going on uh, or that was that just your world Yeah I mean it felt much more like the norm than than these kids who were with their own parents and the whole hmm. you know um, because it was so, it was so common at that time, and also, you know, the, your parents had either migrated or your or your father usually had like been arrested or had was in the dictatorship prison or something, mm-hmm. you know. So, so there was there there was always that absence um, for either one of those reasons, and 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 so we were used to it, and every Sunday. We had a, you know, 
there were no cell phones certainly back then or we didn't and we didn't have a phone at home so we had a standing appointment with our parents on Sunday afternoon where we'd go to downtown Port-au-Prince and go into this um, booth and just talk to them for I think something like very 15 very expensive minutes mm. um, and so my uncle would get the first five and then my brother and I would get each we get five and we would just catch up and 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 that would look forward to the next Sunday so that was our way of communicating and our parents sent us letters um, and we wrote them back letters and cassettes we recorded a lot of cassettes I went to read in a school the other day from uh, a story called Malamos Nightingale, and one of the children were like, "What's a cassette?" <laughs> <laughs> but what an what an amazing idea! Like it's funny because I came across a cassette of me being like five years old. My dad had recorded uh, me as a little kid and just random voices around home, and and how how that must have been for you to kind of eat for each other to receive little pieces of home, right? Like uh, like these telegrams, these these delayed. It's like being a phone, on a phone call with a delay. Oh yeah, I wish I had those cassettes now. I have cassettes. My mom, when she was um, dying, she made cassettes that she left us. I have those, but I wish I had those childhood cassettes. But I think there's also this practice. You know, they were expensive too, so I think there was a lot of erasing, <laughs> like taping oh, over. Taping over, right? Yes. Yeah. Some of that, I mean, some of a lot of that, all of that makes its way into all into your different books, whether it's nonfiction or. Um, or the the two memoirs that you've written, the two versions of Oh Brother and, and the one about uh, the 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 how to write, where you talked about your mother's passing as well. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Talk to me about that, about that becoming. In other words, do you use those things as fuel, right, as writing fuel, uh, and as therapy, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think we all, you know, we use the stuff of our lives for mm-hmm. our stories. I think it's true of of all writers, you know. Um, I think Albert Camus, you know, said in, in his own um, essay, Create Dangerously, like the Nobel lecture, one of his last talks, that he says that, you know, um, an artist, you know, we all have two or three stories that um, make up the gist of our art and, and mm. that tell in different ways. Um, that continue to and, inspire, that you keep returning to. It's like a, th- a thing that you keep looking at from a different uh, from a different perspective, right? It's uh, this yes. little memory you keep turning around and keep writing and finding new ways to write about it. Absolutely. And sometimes it is the thing that gets you writing. You know, I think it's the thing that, that inspires the art at all. And so I, it's definitely true for me. And I think um, when I started, you know, I think of my parents, you know, that separation and um, and the reasons for that separation, the necessity for it, hmm. and it's a separation that is still that still happens in so many families. It's a it's a it's a heartbreaking choice that a lot of parents have to make, with you know enough imagination and enough faith to think that you know something better lies ahead, not just for you, but for your children and the generations to come. It's why people you know cross the Darien Gap. It's why people make all these sacrifices to get to the U.S.-Mexico border, to get here to Florida mm. on, on rafts, on boats. And so, I mean, all of that is, is, is bound in that. And I think all of that is, you know, is something that I return to. And, and, and when you look at, you know, through different ages, you know, when I, get to, when I got to the age where my parents were, when they, you know, when 
when they left me with my own and uncle and I had children of my own and mm. you ask yourself, is this a choice I would have been able to make? And certainly, you, you know, when, you know, if in that same situation. So, you know, all of that stuff, that, that ambiguous stuff, that messy stuff, that sad stuff, it's still, I think it's the, it's, it's the way, it's the stuff of art. And, mm. and for me, it's so important in making sense of my life. You know, I was telling a friend the other day, like, I, you know, writing is how I make sense of my life. It's how I try to make sense of the world that I live in. It's how I, you know, I honor the people I love, the people who are still with me, the people who have transitioned, who are looking at me from the other side. It's just how all those things are processed through me. And I think art sometimes makes us vessels, mm. you know, and um, and even the person creating is not always sure how that stuff comes through. Um, but you, you remain open. And if you have the practice enough, then things come out of it that also might be helpful to you in the creation, but also might be helpful to other people and their own processing of, of, of the world that we, you know, we share. How, how did that how did that come into your life? In other words, how did you learn that writing was this vehicle for you to invest in, not just to create art, but to to address these things, to approach them? Were you always a writer? Was there a person that brought writing and reading into your life that, that helped unlock that? Well, I think it started, for me, it starts with stories. It started with being told stories. You know, there's some amazing, you know, staple um, Haitian folk tales that are like Aesop's fables mm, and oral history type of thing. Yes, it, mm. and and when I was told these stories, I was often told them by um, by women, my aunts, you know, aunts by blood, aunts by you know community, who seemed in their regular lives very very shy, very you know reverent to people who were you know seemed socially um, you know, quote unquote, above them. But when they were in this space with telling their stories, they were so lively. They were transformed. Was, yes, mm. they were transformed in two spaces. That is, mm. so they were transformed in religious ceremony and and story. And so, and I just thought, oh wow, there's just that for me embodied the way that someone can be remade by a story what, what were some telling. yeah I'm, I'm curious what were some of those stories when you were a kid that that um that stayed with you like was there just a, a character or a funny thing happening to happening to a character or someone that you knew or they they were talking about that still stays with you or that you told your own no, daughters they, they were they were folk tales you know there's the mm. one that we always we all tell is the story the the magic orange tree it's about i don't you know, know that one so it's, a, it's this young woman who was very mistreated with the stepmother. There were a lot of stepmothers, mm. but I think stepmothers because, um, or substitute mo these mothers, because I think, you know, my, my mom later told me it's because a lot of people died in childbirth. So there were a lot of stepmother stories, like, mm. you know. Um, and so there was this one, this young girl who's very badly treated, and then she finds... Um, she finds this um, mag this magic seed of an orange tree, and then she plants it, and then she sings to the orange tree to grow, like tis orange Gandhi, 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 tis orange Gandhi, tis orange Gandhi, 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 tis orange Gandhi, belle mais pas maman, 
like stepmother is not real, is not mother. Wow. And and then the tree grows through her singing, through her voice, you know. And um, and I remember, you know, and then there's um, also, um, you know, this this idea that your voice can power something, you know. And mm. um, I wrote a picture book years years later. Um, my you know, Mama's Nightingale. Um, it's and with it, it's has another folktale in in there. But um, that idea of like using your voice to help grow something. And that book is about immigration, you know, and and separation. It's a young woman whose mom mom is detained, detained, and that was very much inspired by, you know, um, visiting um, detention centers where young children are with folks like, you know, Haitian women of Miami and Cheryl Little, then mm. at the um, American for Immigrant Justice, um, and just seeing seeing like th- what that was like and then um writing this and then, and then also having people i knew who who had these separations people in my own family who were separated from their children and and then just having that child that folktale was always in my mind and others of having this child feel powerful enough to be like you have a voice that can grow something that can liberate liberate some you know liberate someone Our guest today is Edwige Dandica. She's being honored at the Miami Book Fair's 40th anniversary celebration this weekend. She'll also be speaking on a panel called Haiti Unveiled on Saturday at 2. Edwige, you, like I was saying before the break, you have this this gift where you can turn around and intertwine like death and birth. Um, Obviously, uh, in Claire the Sea Light, uh, which I have a signed copy from yours from back in the day here um, in front of me uh, the, you know Claire's mom dies giving birth um, you open brother I'm dying um, where you're talking about you finding out you're pregnant the day that your dad your actual dad is is diagnosed with a terminal illness and I'm wondering when you when you deal with those topics right like you are obviously trying to unravel something right you are obviously wrestling with with the thing there um, can you talk to me about some of those things? that it's unlocked in you to be able to to talk about those, holding those two emotions, those two very different points in life next to each other like that? Um, I think that goes back to my childhood. You know, my um, uncle, who's the subject of uh, Brother I'm Dying, who died in immigration custody in, in South Florida, um, at 81 years old with a valid visa. Wow. Um, he was detained at the airport and then um, his medicine was taken away and he died chained to a county hospital bed there in Miami. Um, so it's, te- it's terrifying how many, like, just, I know you're getting the, but it's to, to just to step on that point, like how, ma- how that story still kind of resonates when we've talked about immigration and people in culture and in detention and, and kind of being in this lost forgotten area, you know, where, where it's out of sight of people, it's it's horrible that it still it still resonates that way. Oh, absolutely! I think probably more uh, more than ever because we we have you know more and more folks coming um, because you know with there's so many factors driving you know folks this way, but um, 
you know, immigration, migration is certainly not an issue that's going away. Um, and just and and it just seems more and more like the treatment of folks gets worse and worse. Um, um, but those those stories, it, it's so important to remember. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, processing these stories um, helped me mm. Join this, you know, like a community of these other stories of which I was always a part. But when I told my uncle's story, um, I was able to meet all these other folks who had also had also lost relatives and um, in these circumstances. And then you realize, I think that's the power of story. That's the power of any story Mm. that. Sometimes when we, you know, we're watching the news, we see a number, 10,000, 11,000, 100,000, a million, and, and we forget each of those numbers is an individual, is a human being with a family, and their death has this ripple that goes back, and in the case of, you know, of people, of my people who are refugees or migrants dying, they were the ones that sort of they they were they represented such a hope for people. Mm. They were put forth to go. Um, like my dad went first because he could pull the others. You know that was the hope. That was the dream. And so there's just so many powerful stories in in our communities that. That folks think they know sometimes, but that are so much deeper and so much more painful, and 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 we have wonderful writers in the community who who tell them, and and I and they tell them, they you know, almost as echoes, almost as vessels, almost as um, witnesses, um, but they only you know they tell one story that maybe will resonate beyond the community hmm. um, and and I think when we join these stories together there's there's power to that and that's again going back to the to the book fair a book takes a long time to 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 get produced but when we speak to each other we can tell our story we can tell our stories to each other also in these other in these other casual you know informal community type ways that can also be powerful I'm curious you know, when you're passing on these stories, whether written or, or oral in your own life, um, your daughter who you wrote about and uh, brother, I'm dying when you're pregnant is now in college, right? <laughs> like she's, yeah. she's all grown up. Have you, have you in, been able to connect some of those things in real life or like, have you, what is it like returning to Haiti with your own daughter and thinking about the stories of your own stories, parent, parent, daughter stories? I mean, that's, um, you know, my husband and I, my husband Fedor and I have been really blessed that we have were able to take our daughters to Haiti since really they were months old, and mm, um, wow. and they they kept we kept going back with them until um, maybe 2018 was the last time we were there. Um, but they, I'm very. That's one of the things that I, you know, I'm feeling teary mm. <laughs> thinking about it, but. That's one of the things that I'm, I'm most proud of in my life. That 
my daughters have that they really got to got to be in Haiti, that they got to swim in rivers and sit on their grandmother's porch there. And and part of that is because, you know, we had other we we've had other family members who could not stay where they were. We um you know, my uncle um, was the neighborhood where I grew up was not accessible to me after a while because it was taken over by armed groups and mm. but that my daughters that were able to go to the south to know the countries they, they got to know the countryside a little bit was because they still had a, another grandmother there so that was um you when you feel when you feel moved are you do you feel moved because they've been able to experience and connect with some of those ways and also or also because the island is sometimes inaccessible because of currently what's going on right now with uh, you know the post post the, the assassination of the president is it is that like a, again you're holding two things at the same time you know the the pleasure of being able to connect them to a place where you were and then also um feeling you know the difficulty in, in, in connecting today yeah i think part of it is feeling the difficulty because yeah we also, I mean, I, I think part, you know, we've never, for us, Haiti has never been a, th- a thing that's in the past that hmm. sort of we back nostalgically and fondly because we, we have relatives there. We have, um, you know, very close family members there who are sometimes in great difficulty there too. Um, and, you know, the, there's, the, this this sometimes it's very difficult like you'll get family members who will call and they say oh my gosh I have to run right now there are these armed people outside my door so I think the the the, the current instant too of, of not a, you know like the situation that a lot of young people who are like my my daughters too who feel they have no choice but to but to leave who who sometimes are in hiding and you know it's it's just a uh, it's it's painful in that way it's painful for 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 the folks who really like who really want to stay who are young who want to stay and want to contribute who are brilliant who are bright um but um are not being allowed given the the situation it's very it's very present for you the like you said that haiti is not something that happened it's something that's happening um, yeah, and it's present, I think, for millions of folks in in South Florida in the diaspora, you know, for sure, definitely. And um, and I, you know, also want to point out too, and I think that's one of the things that that as the book fair has also shown, especially through the Caribbean and the Little Haiti um, Book Festival. Um, at the same time, that there's just a really vibrant. Mm. Um, creativity that that keeps happening that you often see inside Florida because some of the you know culture drifts here with you know with our writers with our with our artists with our musicians um, with our filmmakers mm-hmm. that there's also this really powerful powerful um, culture that the creation of which itself right is an extraordinary act of resistance that's already always been true that continues to be true that's true today and um you'll see some of that at the book fair as well 
Well, that's part of it, too, is keeping it alive wherever you are. And you helped start the, the Little Haiti uh, Book Fair, right? The book festival. No, no, I can't take that credit. Oh, you can't no. take that credit. But, you are, you've been a, but you've been a strong part of it since, since it was yeah, started. Yeah, I've been a strong part of it. I think we have um, to credit um, Jean Mapu of Libéry Mapu, who is a, you know, a, a titan, like a, an icon in our community. He runs Li- Libéry Mapu, and, Libre- he, and, he, and he makes <laughs> awesome cremas. Cremas yeah, all year yeah, round. Yeah. You and, can buy a bottle of cremas. <laughs> yeah, has an extraordinary story that spans from New York and started a, a wonderful um, organization called Societe Kukui. I remember, you know, one of the first things I attended when I first moved to Miami was a um, a play um, by Libri Mapu at a theater downtown. It was all in uh, by Societe Kukui. All in Creole, so they're the, one of the lights, um, one one of the lights in the community, and um, and he, I think one it was one of the founders of the um, of the Little Haiti Book Festival, MJ Fier, who always um, is is always you know on point organizing mm-hmm. and um, and she's yeah. and she's uh, moderating the panel that you'll be speaking at on Saturday. So yeah. And and it's also a wonderful author herself. You were asking for to be, you know, to read list, read also read MGFF. <laughs> Perfect. You know, you mentioned Creole, like seeing that play in Creole, and you have done that a lot in your books, um, which is something we're you know we've seen a lot in the, in the last twenty years or so, which is folks writing in their in their native language and not making excuses or translations for it. You know, like. It's you get the context and you get value added if you happen to speak uh, Creole. And, and, I'm, and I'm wondering about how that helps um, you draw the picture and, and put yourself more deeply into your work when you kind of throw rules, those rules out the window. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't the first. You know, I have to, you know, I think Sandra Cisneros, mm-hmm. um, Julia Alvarez, there were so many others who did it first. And um, and often, you know, there are these phrases that you just can't translate. Mm-hmm. You know, um, my you know my Haitian siblings will hear this like you know your parents would always would say things like hey mettez de l'eau dans du vin like, like literally that means like put some water in your wine. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> but. but but it means like chill, you know. Like, right. <laughs> it rings. It's got. It sounds so much better than just saying chill. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and there'll be expressions like, um, you know, my bad blow pour me beurre. like I'm I'm sort of like stirring some water to make butter, which means like I'm, you know, I'm working. It's not even like making lemon lemon. It's like it's like really a, you're working against really difficult odds. So there there are all these expressions like that that are just really impossible to translate. So I think for me, I'm always thinking of. Of when my of my books of a reader like me, who might understand the Creole, but I don't want to do a literal translation. I want to give them a little bit extra pleasure, so I'll do like an you know like an interpretive kind of translation of the Creole, um, so that they might hear an alternate way of of translating it. So that yeah, I think I think that's but that's been a common practice now mm-hmm. for you know for multiple language language speakers um, in literature for 
for quite a while. I mean, there's always a discussion. Should I, you know, italicize, to italicize <laughs> or not to italicize? That is the question. Um, I, you know, I've had, for the last couple of years, I've not italicized, but, um, you know, to just kind of have that, the way we speak, mm-hmm. which sometimes, which is a mixture of, 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 of both of several of these languages. I'm curious, you know, when you write in, when you write like that and you and you're capturing so much of yourself and then you've written so about so much of your own life um talk to me about the life of your children and are do they do they see themselves do you see yourself as haitian as haitian american uh do, and how do they see themselves? how is that different well i think we i we see ourselves as haitian americans i i think they see themselves as haitian americans i We've not sat down to <laughs> <laughs> and dissected. We've not taken a family poll. I'm just a, I'm, I don't want to speak for my children, but I I assume that they do. But no matter how, I think they see themselves. I I I they identify um, with Haiti. They're they're very American. They're more American than I am, in a sense, you know. Um, but they they're definitely also Haitian. I think. Um, you you know I think we tried to expose them to um, as much as Haitian culture as, as possible, um, and because you know with this generation that goes down a bit you know mm-hmm. trying um, to keep certain and, things alive like like those trips yeah. to Haiti were so must have been so important exactly like, did yeah. they come back would they come back feeling more Haitian more connected and even even more rooted in it do you think. Well, you know, it's uh, so much more organic than that. I think mm. children, if you try to hammer something in, then it's like medicine. Mm. But they had fun. They 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 enjoyed. And I, I think I wanted that exposure to have nuance. I didn't want to be like, this is something I'm hammering, you know, into right. you. Um, but I think it's, you know, there's definitely, you know, there's the food every Sunday. There's the music. There's there's all these conversations that you you have and there's i think there's nothing more valuable than having a grandma in a house with you so i highly recommend multi-generational households <laughs> well, well you've been writing multi-generationally very recently like you you published a story collection and a children's book at the same time in 2019 so you're clearly thinking about the full spectrum you are interested you are now at a point in your life where you're you're really seeing kind of more sides of it. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. And I'm also 54 now and sort of moving and moving towards eldership, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and so that like being able to look back and, and also being, you know, able to look forward and seeing like, there's probably more back than forward, you know? which is something weird to say. I'm a little morbid, but weird to say in my um, middle of my 50s. But um, it makes one reflective, especially also, you know, children are a kind of beautiful timeline. You know, they're actually like, you know, I I wrote something a while back. I think I think children are living prayers. Hmm. And um, but they're also you know, you look at them and you're like, oh, it's just, was that yesterday that child was an infant? And then they're now an adult and sort of you kind of see your life through that lens. You kind of, um, 
see progression in that way through like the the the, the just the the beauty of a, of like a living human um and that is you know that is part of you but detached from you and out in the world i think well it, and it, we, I, I hope that i hope that folks will come out and hear you talk more about this subject unfortunately we we're running up against the end of the clock but it's been such a pleasure oh, to spend the hour with you Thank you so much. Thank you. And, and I'll see you all at the book fair. You got it. Our guest today was Edwige Dandica. She's the author of many books, including Crick Crack and Brother I'm Dying, which were National Book Award finalists. She'll be speaking at the book fair on Saturday at 2, and she'll be honored at the gala on Friday. And that's Sundow for Monday, November 13th. Leslie Obay Atkinson is our lead producer. Our producer is Elisa Baena. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at GoPalo.com. I'm Carlos Frias. Good vibes only. WLRN Public Media.